We have been in the book of Matthew for 29 weeks, and we are today finally making it to the chapter where I started the whole series. There's a verse in chapter 27 where we started this entire series. I'm not going to put it up on the screen, but the one verse just basically shows these people staring up at Jesus on the cross, and they say, if he would come down, then we will believe in him. He claims to be the king, but if he's the king and he dies on the cross, we're not going to believe in him. In order for him to be a king, a supernatural king, mind you, he needs to come down from the cross. And so we started this entire series with this idea that we don't want to follow a king who loses. None of us want to follow a leader who loses. We want to follow the winners. In fact, one of the things I've said multiple times during this series is that all of us have a natural tendency to desire to have a bully in charge as long as we're on that bully's team. We all want to be following the person who is strong enough to defeat our enemies and unafraid to actually do so. And Jesus regularly disappoints people. Because Jesus regularly shows up on the scene and he tells people, I'm not going to fight your battles. In fact, you're going to join me as we sacrifice our lives for the battles the other people are facing. I want you to pray for your enemies and those who persecute you. I want you to love the people who hate you. Jesus is the one who says, I'm going to find a loser and I'm going to love the loser. And if you want to be with me, then either you got to admit that you're a loser or you have to start acting like a loser so that we can start finding the losers. That's basically his approach. And no one wants to follow a king like that. The funny thing is, what we do, especially church people, is we say on Sunday mornings in the context of a church gathering or around other church people, we talk about Jesus like we want to follow him, and then in our hearts and our minds we still perceive him as a bully. We still perceive him as the one who is showing up in the future and he's going to finally judge the world and he's going to put all the bad people in their place and he's going to elevate you and me up into this place of glory. And some of that is partially true. But the motive of a heart that wants to follow Jesus because he is the ultimate bully who's going to win at the end is completely misunderstanding Jesus. And it's completely the wrong motive. And it will cause you to be a person who thinks you're following the Savior when you're actually not. Because we get a picture of Jesus time and time again. A picture of Jesus who says things like, lay down your life. Like I am laying down my life, he would say. Now, today we're going to talk about Jesus being crucified. And it's important that you realize the reason he's crucified. It's not given in the text explicitly. But the reason Jesus is crucified is because he was not the bully they wanted. The people back then wanted someone who would conquer the Romans and get rid of the Romans. The Romans were the enemies. The people back then wanted someone who would elevate the law of Moses and get rid of all the people who wouldn't obey it. Those sinners were the enemies. And Jesus was the one who would heal a centurion's servant. And he was the one who would spend time with the sinners. And he was the one who would touch the lepers. And he was the one who wouldn't support the ancient law of Moses and the weird ways they had interpreted it back then. And since he wasn't the Messiah they wanted, they decided to kill him. Now, I'm not going to... 
I'm not going to have the time today, nor do I want to, get into all the nitty-gritty of the crucifixion. Some of you have been to a Good Friday service, and maybe you've heard some things about the crucifixion. Uh, Maybe you've heard some things about the way crucifixion happened back in the days of ancient Rome. And I'm not going to get into all the nitty-gritty of all those kinds of things. I will emphasize just a few points that are important for you to know, historically speaking and medically speaking, so that later on in today's message, something we read will click with you. You see, in crucifixion, there were just a few main ways that people died. The number one way a person died when they were being crucified was suffocation. That's the ultimate way they died. The lungs just wouldn't do the job anymore for a number of different reasons. And the biggest problem that would happen is that you would have to push yourself up on the nails your feet were that had penetrated your feet, and the nails that were up here in your arms, and you had to pull yourself up on a cross, scraping your back against the wood, and that was the way you could exhale. Because see, the way the crucifixion worked, it put your body in a position where all the air could go into your lungs, but your diaphragm was so stretched out, it couldn't push any air out of your lungs, and so you would literally just simply suffocate on your own carbon dioxide, unless you could push yourself up enough and pull yourself up enough to exhale enough so that you could bring in a little bit more fresh, fresh oxygen. And suffocation was the means of death. That's why it took such a long period of time, because the human will to fight to stay alive is so strong. But there are a couple other things that could cause the death to come faster. And I'm going to put a list of them up on the screen. One of them is that your muscles would just get too tired. You just couldn't do it anymore. You couldn't push up anymore to exhale. And and your muscles were too tired, and so you would just suffocate there. (laughs) Another one is that your joints would get dislocated. Being on a cross like that, it was very easy for your shoulder joints to get pulled out of socket or maybe even for your knees to stop operating properly. And so the joints would get dislocated and therefore you have no strength to push up anymore. Or your bones could get broken. The soldiers would come by and they would break the legs of the people so that they could no longer push themselves up to exhale. Or your lungs would actually fill with fluid. They'd been doing so much work and had been stressed so much that fluid would come into your lungs and you would drown, not just suffocate. Or, in some cases, a heart could literally burst inside of a person because it had been working too hard. The details of this are not given in the text, at least in Matthew. But I want you to have those pictures in your mind because they will show up a little bit later. But before we get into Matthew 27, let me remind you of a few verses we have read before. Verses that are incredibly important for you and me as we begin to look at what Jesus goes through in his moment of crucifixion. And so I would ask you to have these verses in your heart as you hear and see the things that happen to Jesus. Here's the first one. Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is a few chapters before, but Jesus is letting them know, if you want to follow me, following me means a cross. 
Or let's go back to Matthew 5. It says this, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Early, early on in his ministry, his first message to his followers was this, You have to be ready for persecution. You have to receive persecution. And you have to rejoice in the midst of persecution because your reward in heaven will be great. Because this is the way all God's people have always been treated. Or one more verse says, The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants to be like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, a name for a demon or maybe even Satan himself that people threw at Jesus sometimes, how much more the members of his household? Jesus says that students have the primary job of becoming like their teacher. So as we read these passages today about the crucifixion, I want you to get a a very clear picture of the kind of king Jesus is. But lingering in the back of your heart and your mind, I also need you to get a kind of picture about the kind of person the person who follows the king is. Because if I want to follow Jesus... That means I need to respond to my world the same way he responded to his. A long time ago, there were these bracelets that people would wear that said WWJD. You remember some of those bracelets? And we would kind of make fun of people who were wearing the bracelets, even though I was a Christian and in a church, I would still sometimes make fun of people who were wearing those bracelets because I'm like, you can't remember that? Like, come on. It stands for what would Jesus do? And it's a great question to ask. The problem is we never ask the question all the way because the answer to that question is always the same. What would Jesus do? He would die for you. That's the answer. Do you want to follow a king like that? Today I'm going to show you a picture of the king that I follow. It's in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. We read, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. They knew they wanted him dead. They just needed to make their strategy. Now remember, he's already been arrested. They've already been kind of interrogating him through the night. Peter already disowned Jesus three times. But now these guys are spending some time early in the morning strategizing what is the actual method of death. Verse 2. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. This is really important and it's also very sad. These guys are getting together to strategize how to kill Jesus, right? That's their plan. How do we get him dead? Their answer is, we can't. We have to give him over to Pilate. 
the governor. See, this is the reason they wanted Jesus dead. Because the Jewish people didn't have control over their own destiny. They didn't have control over their own lives. Everything that they did had to be sanctioned, had to be approved by the government, by the Roman government. And Jesus was clearly not the Messiah they wanted. He was clearly a blasphemer. He even said things like he was the son of God or something like that. Who would say such a thing? These people couldn't stomach Jesus being such a blasphemer. And so according to their law, they needed to kill him. But according to Roman law, they didn't have the authority to do so. And can you imagine how painful that must have been to them? How embarrassing that must have been to them? For them to be these people who say, we know the right thing to do. We know that we need to kill this guy because he blasphemed. He claimed to be God. We know what we should do, but we can't because of the stupid Roman government has given us all these rules. And from the very beginning, you begin to get a sense of a power struggle a power struggle between some people who are scheming and the people they have to manipulate to get their scheme to work. This power dynamic is going to play out the rest of this chapter. And in fact, it's one of the key things we'll be talking about in October. But this power dynamic is clear right here. These people want their independence. They want their freedom. And in order to get their independence and freedom, they need some bully to free them from the Roman oppression. But this guy won't do it. And so this guy's going to die. And so this guy, they actually have to bring to the Roman oppressors and say, would you kill him for us? Because we know we're not allowed to. Keep going. Verse 3. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. I'm going to make just a real brief comment about this right here. There have been a lot of church traditions that have used this verse here about Judas hanging himself as a verse to use to vilify people who have committed suicide. Now, I am not saying that suicide is a good thing or a noble thing in any way. Please, I have more to say about that topic. What I am saying is that sometimes people use the Judas story to blame a person who is struggling with incredible depression or any other sorts of things that might lead a person to take that kind of action. And judging another person is not something we have authority to do. I don't even think you should judge Judas because at the end of Judas's life, he said, I have done wrong. There are a lot of people who go to their grave without admitting that they have done wrong. I don't think we should be judging, but I will say one more thing. If you have ever been in that place of darkness, if you've ever known someone who has been in that place of darkness, where it feels like there is no future, where it feels like there is no hope, where it feels like you have spent your life, I want to encourage you that if you woke up this morning with breath in your lungs, then God isn't done with you yet. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. I don't know what would have happened if Judas had stayed around for just two more days. Because something happens on Sunday that might have given Judas some hope. 
If Judas could have just lingered for a few more days, perhaps, perhaps he would have found the hope that he desperately needed. But he cut things short. And I want to encourage you, don't ever cut God's plan short in your life. If you are breathing, He's got a job for you, a purpose for you, a purpose in you and through you, and a purpose for the world because of you. Stick with him. It's a good thing, no matter how bleak things might look at some particular point in time. And I know that because of what we will see next Sunday. But let's keep moving because there's a question of why this Judas story even shows up in the text. Look at verse 6. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Okay, a couple things real here. First of all, why does the Judas story exist in the book of Matthew? Matthew is trying to make two points. Point number one, Judas knew Jesus was innocent, and so you should too. Judas knew Jesus was innocent. The number one point is that everybody knew Jesus was innocent. He did not deserve to die. The innocence of Jesus is a foundational Christian principle that must be understood. That's the first thing Matthew wanted you to know. Even Judas knew that Jesus was innocent. The second thing that you need to know is that Matthew believed the whole Judas thing with the 30 pieces of silver was foreordained by God. Matthew believed that the Old Testament had prophesied Jesus would be crucified. Matthew believed that Jesus' betrayal into the hands of these people was because of prophecy and to fulfill prophecy. Now, I got to give you a little bit of a disclaimer here. Matthew says it's Jeremiah who gives this quote, and then he gives us a quote. But guess what? There's nothing in Jeremiah that sounds anything like what Matthew just quoted here. In Jeremiah, there's never a reference to 30 pieces of silver. It's just not there. And so the question is, was Matthew making this up? Is he lying to us? What's going on? Well, do you remember back at the beginning of our study in Matthew, there was this one phrase where Matthew said, to fulfill the Old Testament, he'll be called the Nazarene. There was this old passage that said that Jesus would be called the Nazarene, and Matthew was quoting it, and we were talking about it, because that's also not in the Old Testament. There's no Old Testament prophet that says the Messiah will be called the Nazarene. But we understood back then at the time that what Matthew had done is he had taken a whole broad brush stroke of Old Testament prophecy and combined it into a paraphrase that could be summarized with a quote. And so he gave us a quote. And you and I think, well, it's improper to quote without an actual or original source. But back then, what Matthew was doing is he's summarizing and made a quote. He's doing the same thing here. And the summary comes from two different prophets. Zechariah is the one who talked about 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah chapter 11. And Jeremiah talks about the field, the potter's field that gets called a field of blood in in Jeremiah chapter 19. So Zechariah 11, Jeremiah 19. It's in the footnotes of a lot of modern Bibles. But here's the point. I don't have time to read those passages. I really wish I did. I don't have time. But to summarize, in Zechariah, a good shepherd kicks out three bad shepherds and 
starts to care for a a flock of sheep. While the good shepherd is caring for the flock of sheep, the flock of sheep are so disobedient to the good shepherd that he gets fed up and decides to quit. And he quits and goes to the owner of the sheep and says, pay me whatever you think I'm worth. And the owner gives him 30 pieces of silver because that's all he's good for. And so the picture is that the good shepherd is only good for 30 pieces of silver. And then in Jeremiah, God tells Jeremiah to go buy a pot from a bunch of potters and to go outside the Jerusalem gate called the potter's gate to the field out by the potter's gate and to take the pot that he just bought and to drop it on the ground and break it because God is fed up with his people and he's done with them because they haven't been following him and he says, this pot is my judgment against you. As the pot breaks and will never be repaired, so are you. And so Jeremiah predicts a future day when the whole people of Israel will be destroyed broken, the whole nation will be broken, never to be repaired again. And so these two prophecies are of a shepherd being rejected by the people and therefore incurring judgment on themselves. And Matthew says, Jesus fulfills it. Does it make sense? Jesus is the good shepherd who is now being rejected by the people. They are crucifying him and as a result, there will be judgment later to come. So that's what the Judas thing is all about. But now, the rest of the story is us reading the account of Jesus before Pilate and his eventual death. Verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, You have said so. I want you to just write down a few observations about Jesus. The first one is that this king affirms the truth despite the consequences. This king is asked a question, are you the king of the Jews? If he says no, Pilate lets him go. That's it. If Jesus keeps his mouth shut, Pilate lets him go. That's it. Pilate, the governor, doesn't want anything to do with the silly Jewish traditions. He's fed up with the Jewish people. He just wants to govern. He's in trouble with Caesar at this point in time in history. He's in trouble with Caesar, and he's really, really not wanting any more trouble in his life. And so he is just looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. And if Jesus keeps his mouth shut, then Pilate would have to let him go. But Jesus says, you said so. Verse 12, when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Write this down. This king does not defend himself against accusation. Jesus will affirm the truth about himself. But he will not defeat a lie about himself. Do you see the difference? Jesus will affirm the truths about himself, but he doesn't even address the lies about himself. It's an amazing 
amazing decision and an amazing king. Verse 15, now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barsabbas or Barabbas. There's a footnote there that says a lot of manuscripts don't have the word Jesus there, but most scholars think it should accurately be there, that Barabbas's name was Jesus Barabbas, which is fine because Jesus was a very common name back then. It was actually just the word Joshua. In fact, Jesus' name in uh, Hebrew and in uh, Greek is basically Joshua. It's just for some reason we get it through, through Latin and then German and so we call him Jesus. But his name in Hebrew would have been Joshua. So Joshua or Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who's called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Now I could... I could make comments about an unjustified crowd yelling for whatever it is they want because they've been whipped up by something or someone, but that's neither here nor there. It's just something that happens in history. Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. There's so many little details in here I'd love to spend a lot of time on, but I can't. Instead, I want to ask you one question. In that whole scene, Pilate, the crowd, the, the leaders, the wife, that whole scene, who's in charge? Think about it. Is Pilate the governor, the Roman governor? Is he actually in charge of this situation? I mean, his wife is sending him messages. Like, I've I've been having dreams in the middle of the day somehow. I don't know how that's going on. But she says, I'm having dreams. I've been suffering all day because of this. And so, listen, Pilate, honey, buddy, you got to let the guy go. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, he is a Roman governor in like 30 AD. Roman governors didn't listen to anyone else, let alone women. And yet somehow the message gets to him, somehow we hear about the message, somehow Matthew heard about the message and wrote it down, so somehow the rumor of the wife tried to stop it gets out there. Do you think that makes everybody think Pilate is a really great guy in that culture back then? Now today, listening to your wife is a good thing. I encourage it. But back then... Back then, man, that guy, everybody's going to be like, what, his wife sent him a message and he listened to, what is that all about? And then he had second thoughts. What is that? And he's Pilate. The Romans killed Jewish people left and right all the time. Why is he worried about this guy, Jesus? What's the problem with one more dead Jewish person? It's not a problem for any other Roman soldier. Why is it a problem for Pilate? The question is, who is really in charge? It's clearly not Pilate. Is it the Jewish leaders? No, they're not in charge. They can't do anything without Pilate. 
Is it the wife? She's not in charge. She tries to have influence, but it doesn't work. Is it Barabbas? No, he's just another criminal. Is it the crowd? Not really. They're the ones making the most noise, but they're not the ones making the decision. Who's in charge? Well, come to think of it, there's one other person in that scene, right? And for 27 chapters, Matthew's been trying to tell us that that's the guy who's the king. So you've got a governor, you've got a wife, you've got leaders, you've got a crowd, you've got a criminal, and you've got a guy that Matthew's been telling us is the king. Which, which of all these characters, this guy that, you know, even Pilate says, are you the king? Which of all these characters has walked on water? Which of all these characters has told the wind to quiet down, and it did. Which of all these characters has, with a wave of his hand, caused a thousand demons to leave a man and enter a bunch of pigs and run them off a cliff? Which of these characters in this story is in charge? You see, Jesus is not, please, don't ever get this idea in your head. Jesus is not and has never been a victim. In this whole story, don't ever let your mind wander into that place where it seems like Jesus is the victim of some plot or scheme against him. Of all of these characters in this story, only one of them has any kind of real authority whatsoever, and it is the one who has just been carried away to be flogged. Up until this point in time, Jesus has been the subject of every sentence in the book. I mean, not literally, but basically the subject of every sentence in the book. Jesus does. Jesus says. Jesus heals. Jesus goes. But here... He has suddenly become the object. And other actors are doing things to him. And guess what? He's letting it happen. The only way to understand this story is to recognize that Jesus is the king who is a willing sacrifice. With the power of heaven at his disposal, he could bring lightning down right then and there on the crowd if he wanted to. He's the guy who fed the crowd. He's the guy who healed the lepers. If he wanted to, he could undo it all right now. Bam, y'all got leprosy. What you want to do about that? He's that guy. And yet, he willingly lets them beat him to a pulp. He willingly lets them lie about him. He willingly lets them turn him into an object of scorn. And as you will see, he willingly goes to his death. We pick it up in verse 27. 
Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Keep going. It says, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. So far, what you are seeing is now the soldiers are in a power struggle. The soldiers are like, who's in charge here? No, we're in charge. It's not Pilate. We're in charge. We're the ones with the purple clothes. We're the ones with the crown of thorns. We're the ones with all these things, and we're making that guy our king. Oh, hey, king, whatever. You know, they're mocking him. And when you mock something else, you are superior to that other thing. That's the reason all of us make fun of people in charge because we want to feel more superior than the person who's in charge. And that's what these people are doing here with Jesus. They're mocking him so that they can feel superior. And then they find this guy named Simon from Cyrene. He's a black man. And they're like, you, out of all the people around here, I want you to pick up the cross. You carry that cross. Why? Because we're stronger than you. And we can make you do whatever we want you to do. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Everything they're doing here is an exercise of power. It's an exercise of them trying to exert their own personal power over this situation. And so each one of these soldiers is getting creative with new ways for them to exert personal power. But I got to tell you, when I was younger, this inscription over the cross, the inscription that says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews, that inscription, I always thought when I was a kid, I always thought it was Pilate, who was actually a pretty good guy, putting a notice on the cross because Pilate was trying to say, even though we're killing him, Jesus is a good guy. And there was a part of me that was like, oh, it's so fitting that, that there's at least someone there who recognizes who Jesus really is. And so even though the whole government thing is killing him, someone there is really recognizing who Jesus is. And I was like, okay, so someone, someone needs to have a little hand clap for that. And then I grew up and I realized how insidious that statement actually is. Because see, the truth of it is, these people have just crucified Jesus after beating him up and whipping him and flogging him, and so he is just absolutely covered in blood. He is head to toe, barely recognizable as a human being, and he is looking just absolutely disgusting and gross. And so when they put a sign on top that says, this is the king of the Jews, that is a power play. Because they're saying, oh, hey, everybody, you, you want a king? Look at the kind of king that the Jews come up with. Look at the kind of king the Jews get. Look at how insignificant, how weak and worthless this guy is. Look at how gross he is. That's the kind of king those people get. And so they put this sign up top to say, look at the kind of king you have and look at what we can do to him. Ha, 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 ha. The Romans are now exerting even more power over the situation by putting that sign above Jesus' head, but you need to know that something even bigger is going on for you and me today.
Because it's true. The kind of king that God gives us is the kind of king who's bloody and beaten and won't fight for himself and the king who sheds his own blood. All of us want a king who sheds other people's blood. We want a king who's going to fight our battles and he's going to shed the other people's blood. And that's the way most kings operate. The king is safe. He's in his tower or he's back in the back of the army or whatever. And other blood is always shed, but never the king's until this moment. And the king of the Jews is the king who sheds his own blood. If we were to jump back to Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, we would see these words. Jesus called his disciples together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's been saying this the whole time. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not based on who you stand above, but who you kneel beneath. I want to keep reading the final bits of this story. Give us a few more details that you need to have. Verse 38. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This king... This is the king who endures insults. Even the insults of, oh, the rebels next to him are insulting him. And now, I'm going to finish up most of the story. From noon, verse 45, until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing here, standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on his staff, offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. This section is one of the most misunderstood sections about the crucifixion. And so it's going to form the basis of basically the rest of my message. So here's the deal. Jesus, we are told by Matthew, says two things from the cross. 
Now, we know from the other Gospels that there are other things that Jesus says from the cross. For example, at one point, he looks down at the foot of the cross where his mother is standing next to John the Apostle, and he would say to John the Apostle, this is your mother. Care for her. Basically, John, I give you my mom. You've got to take care of her for me. Uh, there are a couple other things that Jesus says from the cross, but Matthew only mentions two. He mentions one, this quotation, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, And then he translates it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he shows us that the people around Jesus misunderstood it. Matthew knows it somehow. Matthew knows what Jesus was saying, but the people standing around Jesus at the time thought he was calling out to Elijah because Eli is the Hebrew word for my God, and Eli is the first half of Elijah's name. Elijah's name in Hebrew is Eliyah which means Yahweh is my God. And so Eli is the first half of Elijah, and so they thought maybe he's just using a nickname that no one ever used. But anyway, so they misunderstand what Jesus is saying, and I tell you the truth, many people have misunderstood what Jesus is saying here. Before I get into that piece, though, Matthew tells us Jesus says two things, and he only quotes one of them. The other thing is something that Matthew, I don't think, heard. But John did. See, Matthew wasn't actually at the cross. He had run away and stayed away. But John stayed at the cross. And in John's gospel, we get to hear, after they gave Jesus this wine vinegar mixed with gall, after they give him this stuff, he drinks it, he says something, and then he gives up his spirit. And in John, we read this. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So John tells us the phrase was, it is finished. Now, here's why that's all interesting to me. You see, there's this this tradition in Christianity that I believed for most of my life. I held for most of my life. A tradition in Christianity that when Jesus said this phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the moment in human history, the first time ever, when the relationship between the Father and the Son had been separated because the sin of the world had been put upon Jesus while he's on the cross. And since the sin of the world had been put on Jesus while he's on the cross, the Father, who is perfect, cannot look at sin, and so he turned his face away so that he wouldn't see the sin on Jesus and in that moment, for the first time ever, the relationship between father and son was severed somehow in some relationship way. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the standard traditional story that I have heard my entire life that is present in some songs that we even sing here in this place is that Jesus is so covered with sin that the father turns away. And I no longer believe that. Because... There is something going on here that is bigger and deeper than Matthew knew. For this entire time in the book of Matthew, we have been seeing Matthew quote the Old Testament, quote the Old Testament, and then we've looked at the Old Testament quotations time and time again. We've gone back to the Old Testament to see what the quotation is that Matthew was referring to, and we've learned a lot of really cool things by doing that. But here, because Matthew wasn't there at the cross to hear what Jesus said at the end, Matthew didn't get the full picture of what was being quoted. Because you got to know there is a song that begins with the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And ends with the words, it is finished. 
And I do not believe Jesus was saying something off the cuff. I do not believe Jesus was saying something because he was complaining. I believe that Jesus knew this psalm, and I think, in fact, he probably was in his heart quoting it until he made it to the end. And that's when it ended. And so I want to share that psalm with you today. It's Psalm 22. Yeah, the one right before the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The one right before I might go through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. The the one before that. And it was written by David. And remember, Jesus is the super David. He's the King David of all kings. And in Psalm 22, we read some amazing words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. They say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me. For trouble is near. And there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey. Open wide their mouths Open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shard. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. 
Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring it to a people yet unborn. He has done it. Or in my paraphrase, it is finished. You see, the picture of what's happening on the cross is Jesus, fully aware, I'm convinced, fully aware of this Old Testament psalm written by David that no one understood. Oh, it's easy to understand Psalm 23. That's an easy one. But no one understood Psalm 22. 400, 500, 600 years. David lived a thousand years before Jesus. And no one back then had even heard of crucifixion, let alone piercing hands and feet. No one back then would have any thought about a person who was anointed by God to be the king and yet be on such display with his bones out of joint and his heart melting like wax. No one would have thought of such a thing for a thousand years except for Jesus who hanging on the cross knows that a thousand years ago he told David a song to write. And David wrote the song that Jesus got to sing. And so when Jesus comes to the end of the song of faith, a song that says, my God, I feel like you've forsaken me, but I know you're not far away. I know you don't despise the suffering of the afflicted one. I know you don't turn your face away. And so I will stay and I will endure and I will call your name and I will one day praise your name in front of a bunch of other people. And so, then at the end, it is finished. Write this down. This king, our king, Jesus, endured his suffering by holding on to a faith in the Father's continued presence and unfolding plan. I have no doubt that that's what was going on in Jesus' heart and in his mind as he's hanging on the cross. He is quoting the psalm. He is thinking the psalm. He is suffering with the psalm. And he is holding a faith that the presence of his Father has never and will never leave him, and faith that the unfolding of his Father's plan is still going to happen. I don't know, I don't know what kind of suffering or hardship you guys are facing right now or, or what you have faced or what you will face, but the suffering of Psalm 22 is the suffering of your Savior, and it is the suffering you can join because in faith, it's a suffering that says God will never turn his back on us. It's a faith that says God is always with us and God's plan will work out. Nothing to fear. Okay, so how do we take this home? What do we do with it? Let me read you the final few verses. In verse 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. And that's where we'll stop this week. But here's what I want you to take home. Jesus, who is our king, our king, the son of God, he modeled for us a true faith, a true kind of faith that allows him to sacrifice himself to reconcile people to God. Listen, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you need to respond to our world the way he responded to his. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to be a person who takes up a cross daily and follows Him, a denying yourself kind of life and following Him. What it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be the kind of person who holds on to God so tightly that I can let go of everything else, even me. Because I am holding on to God so tightly that nothing else is needed. Everything else can go, and all of this can be sacrificed Not for my reward, but so that another person could be brought in. Jesus sacrificed his life for you and for me. If you've never received that gift, today's your day. Just in your heart, you say, Jesus, thank you for your gift of of salvation, freedom, forgiveness from my sins. Thank you for your incredible sacrifice for me. You do that anytime, every time, all day, every day. Do it today. Receive that and say, Jesus, I receive the sacrifice that you have paid for me. But beyond that, if you truly receive his sacrifice into you, if you truly receive his sacrifice into you, then you become one. And from that point on, our mission is clear. Our journey is clear. We are the people who sacrifice ourselves to reconcile other people to their heavenly Father. He will not turn his back on you. He will not turn his back on them. And he will not turn his back on them because you are going to be there reaching out to them. He's doing it through you. He's doing it through us. He's doing it through us together. So if you want to follow the king, you have a choice to make. Either you actually follow the king or you run away. But for those who choose to follow the king, we're following a king who would sacrifice himself, modeling faith so that he could reconcile other people to God. That's what we're all about. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and that's what this church is hoping to be, and it's what I hope you are planning to be with us. So thank you for being here today. Thank you for for being a person who wants to follow Jesus this way, and let's live this out this week. Listen, there are so many ways that we could defend ourselves. There's so many ways that we could fight for our own rights. There's so many ways that we could try to, try to do something that makes our lives better, but that's never the way Jesus operates. And I want to be the kind of person who follows him, living in faith and reconciling others to God. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you, God loves you, and his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. 
And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.